Hello and welcome to Politics at King's with me, Jack Lewis and Mohammed Tahir. Today we will be talking to Jack Brown, who taught both me and Mohammed on a module about London governance last semester, or should I say two semesters, actually, two semesters ago. But Jack, would you like to introduce yourself briefly? Yeah, it feels like a hundred semesters ago, right? Because we've been uh, locked down since then, lots changed. I've got no sense of time whatsoever. Yes, I'm Dr. Jack Brown, part-time lecturer in London Studies at King's College London, where we had a great time however many semesters ago. It was looking at London's history and governance. And I'm part-time at a think tank called Centre for London, where I'm a research manager uh, looking at the capital's critical challenges. Um, Our mission is to kind of make fairer and more prosperous place looking at different ways we can do that and so at the moment the thing that I'm working on um, with it being 2020 is a book on the history of the mayoralty to date so London's mayor being 20 years old we're going to get it out just in time for that to still be the case (laughs) November I think is looking likely but we'll make it in 2020 really happy to be here I'll just pass over to Mohammed who will introduce the topic So today we'll be talking about the London mayoralty, not just one of the most high profile jobs in British politics, but also one of the trickiest to pronounce. So the job holds tremendous soft power and establishes great credibility as a representative of one of the most important cities in the world. After the Greater London Council had been abolished by Margaret Thatcher, it became apparent that there needed to be some form of designated London authority that could be responsible for the infrastructure, public services, and basically catering to the specific needs of such a large major city. The mayoralty and the Greater London Authority were the answers to this. They've been in place for 20 years now. What have they achieved? Our podcast will examine the three London mayors in turn, looking at their achievements individually and collectively. We'll also be examining the strengths and pitfalls of London's governance structure. So um, obviously London uh, has a very old history. Uh, You could trace it back as far as the Romans, if not further. Um, But I'm going to briefly summarize it in a few minutes. So here we go. So prior to 1855, uh, you had the City of London Corporation encompassing what you might refer to today as the square mile or the financial center of the city. But outside of that area, the traditional Roman wall area, Lots of small parishes existed, but there was very little in the way of overall governance. So it was very difficult to coordinate sanitation, roads, and let alone education and healthcare across a wider area. But then in 1855, you had the Metropolitan Board of Works coming into being. It was an appointed, unelected body which dealt with a wider area of London and dealt mainly with infrastructure and sanitation. Two of its main achievements include the building of the Thames Embankment all the way from Westminster to Blackfriars and also the construction of the London sewage system. However, the Metropolitan Board of Works was mired in corruption, uh, unfortunately, and was abolished in 1889 to be replaced by the London County Council. Uh, Now, the London County Council basically oversaw the area of what we might call today inner London. So that's going from Hammersmith in the west to Woolwich in the east, so sort of inner London boroughs today. Uh, It was quite a wide-ranging body. Um, It dealt with healthcare. For most of its history, it operated prior to the introduction to the NHS, so it did deal with healthcare itself. Um, It also had welfare services, responsibility over housing and education, 
and until 1933, public transport. It was also democratically elected. Then in 1965, it was abolished to be replaced by the Greater London Council, which was also democratically elected. But the main differences from the London County Council was that the Greater London Council encompassed a larger area, essentially the current day area of London and the 32 boroughs and the city of London. However, there was a split of responsibilities between the London boroughs and the Greater London Council, often leading to disputes between the two. But the Greater London Council's authorities did powers did include roads and to an extent housing. Yet, as Mohammed mentioned, uh, it was abolished in 18, sorry, in 1986 by Margaret Thatcher, who viewed it as a a rather troubling leftist organization led by Ken Livingston, who emerged later, but more on that soon. So from 1986 to the year 2000, uh, London actually had no elected citywide governance. Uh, it was left to the London boroughs to decide how affairs such as, such as education, transport and so forth were dealt with. Yet you did have some London-wide bodies, uh, including London First, and also several different pan-borough associations across London. And then uh, you have the introduction of the mayoralty in the year 2000, but I won't give a brief potted history of that because the rest of this podcast is devoted to that. So I wanted to have a brief discussion amongst the three of us around what sorts of structural issues might determine the success or failure of a citywide authority. Jack, would you mind sharing your insights on this one? I mean, it's a really good sort of potted history in um, just, a, just a few minutes. Lots of kind of, to someone who hasn't, isn't familiar with this, I imagine lots of repetition of the word London and things like council <laughs> and just kind of mashed up and uh, put together in different orders again. I guess the key point is that London happened in a really sort of organic way. So from the Romans onwards, there's kind of, like you say, the city of London in the middle, which is a kind of coherent thing, which used to be London, full stop. There used to be the extent of London, little bits of suburbs outside. Metropolitan Board of Works, as you mentioned, was kind of an attempt to provide infrastructure and, like you say, sanitation across a wider area. And that kind of gives it some sort of coherence. But it wasn't necessarily saying that there is such a thing as London yet, only that there's a kind of a built-up metropolitan area that needs some services shared. And a big part of that was to do with cholera, right? Everyone started getting cholera and they didn't understand where it was coming from, didn't realise it was from bad water, in effect, from sewage. They thought it was from the smell that come off the Thames, the great stink, and so decided to do something about it. And you get these various forms of government after that. And they kind of change over time because London expands to some extent. It's because of the physical expansion. Um, and so there's a kind of question about the boundaries. It's really interesting that kind of is a recurring thing. You know, where does, where does London end? That's really interesting. How they're elected is really interesting. Something you mentioned as well, I'd love to talk about as well. Also, whether they're powerful or not. I mean, there's sometimes these, these bodies, the London County Council was only responsible for quite a small area, but was really strong in a lot of ways. Particularly, you know, there's still quite a lot of housing estates um, where you can see London County Council branding still. You know, they went out and built things. They're quite activist. Um, and that kind of reduces over time rather than get stronger. 
and we've only just started building council housing again. And with the um, with the council housing aspects of the London County Council, you can see a lot of former estates created by them. I think one of them is the Boundary Estate down in I think you'd call it Bethnal Green, really, just sort of north of Shoreditch, um, and it's a beautiful estate. And it did benefit a lot of people uh, when it was built, but the only problem was that they raised a old slum to the ground, basically. And a lot of the new people moving into the newly built estate actually weren't from the area originally. Uh, and the people who had been removed from the slums struggled to find a new area to live or they just moved a mile away to a different slum. So I think, yeah, the London County Council achieved a lot, but I think like any organisation or any social programme, there'll always be a few people who are unfortunately left behind. And it's an issue that still dogs the current um, citywide authority, uh, I suppose. And again, housing is something that really spans so many different departments and localities as well. You hear about Boris Johnson or Sadiq Khan talking about their record as mayor, talking about how many houses they're building or have built, but then you can't put all of that on one person. You know, Surely some of it is local authority, some of it is central government, some of it is private investment, so, you know, it's hard to actually pin down responsibility. Incredibly important issue for London at the moment. There's a housing shortage. Yet, only very recently has London-wide government started building council housing again. So actually, the vast majority of housing is, not, is actually built by the private sector. So it's more about enabling it. So there's incredible contrast between how important it is and how much you're judged on it and then powers that you have. So speaking of the mayoralty and the GLA, Jack, would you like to outline the conditions under which they were created? So to do a kind of potted history, um, you both mentioned that in 1986, you had from 1981, a really quite radically left-wing Greater London Council under Ken Livingstone. He wasn't actually the leader the Labour group when they were elected in 1981 but he sort of organised I guess what you could call a kind of constitutional uh, coup and takes charge and um, the GLC is based just across the road uh, just across the river rather um, in County Hall from the House of Parliament and they display in big uh, letters and numbers the unemployment figures you know at Thatcher saying this is your fault you know it's a really confrontational uh, situation, those two, you know, Thatcher being quite notoriously um, strong um, in terms of her ideology and Livingston being the same but, but opposite to, to a large extent. So that really winds Thatcher up. The response is the abolition, as you mentioned, of the Greater London Council. A lot of people weren't even aware that it was there, really. It was perhaps less powerful than the LCC before it employed a lot of people but didn't have quite such strong powers lots of its big plans aren't delivered for one reason or another but when Thatcher announces she's going to get rid of it it suddenly becomes very popular you know this is an attack on democracy local democracy opinion polling shows this that it was you know that Londoners didn't want it to go but it does go you have this period where London has no democratic city-wide government and it's done by various different government departments very centralized Actually, this is the period, 1986 is the point where London's population starts to grow again. Um, it's been declining for decades in the post-war years, and people start to come back, and London starts to emerge in the early 90s as like a world city in the way that we recognise it now, kind of big services, focused economy, very globalised. So actually, things start to turn around quite a lot, but there is still a sense that there should be a figurehead of some sort, or that, that there is a kind of democratic deficit 
for Londoners. Tony Blair's government is very big on devolution, particularly to Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. These are really important constitutional changes, but are also convinced that there should be uh, something done for London. I think it's particularly Blair who insists it should be a mayor. It should be a American style individual, as opposed to something he's very nervous about, which is GLC Mark II, another kind of big council that could be taken over by a left wing um, and perhaps difficult to control Labour figure. And so he, he, wants, he wants a mayor. There's a referendum which is won in every single London borough. They all vote for this idea of a mayor. I think it's about three quarters of people who say yes, but only about a third of people vote at all. <laughs> it's a massive, incredibly low turnout, really, but a very decisive result. Yes, we want it. And so the Melty um, comes into life. There's an act in 1999, but the Melty begins in 2000. Uh, there's an attempt by Labour. Well, there's a whole debate over whether Ken Livingston, who has sort of re-emerged, as a, as a contender, whether he'll be allowed into the Labour Party to be their candidate. They decide no, Blair, and people in the Blair government as well, Gordon Brown, John Prescott, very like concerned. The whole new Labour project is about not being associated with that kind of radicalism. It's about being slightly more centre ground, palatable to more people. They're, they're concerned about Ken Livingston. He ends up running as an independent, as we know and wins, beats Labour's candidate, Frank Dobson, who by all accounts is a thoroughly decent man, but was never going to win. I think he comes third in the end, Stephen Norris, the Conservatives coming second. So it, it's kind of a fascinating story there. It kind of backfires on Blair to a large extent. And Blair also, part of the appeal of, of the, the idea of having a single person was that he hoped it would be a figure from outside politics. Originally, people like uh, Richard Branson I mentioned early on, that he wanted a kind of, you know, a business figure. David Cameron later tries this for Conservatives, and again, it doesn't work, but you get a kind of celebrity politician instead. Yeah, it doesn't maybe deliver exactly what Blair wanted it to, but he is, Blair and the Blair government are absolutely crucial to it happening. Yeah, that's very, that's very interesting, particularly the aspects of celebrity politics, if you like, we've picked up on there. You know, there's always been this emphasis on the celebrity mayor, or the mayor as the central figure, and I think this almost links to the fact that ever since the inception of the mayoralty, the mayors have been known by their first names, you know, Ken, Boris, uh, Sadiq, you know, as if you know them. So it's such an emphasis on that one personality figure. I just want, I was just wondering as well, Jack, if you could briefly explain just for the listeners who are perhaps less familiar with the government uh, structure in London. I'm just wondering if you could explain the brief kind of powers of the mayoralty and also the role of the Greater London Assembly. Sure, absolutely. So, so the whole thing, the London-wide government is called the Greater London Authority, and that is made up of the mayor and his or her office and the London Assembly. So both of which are elected every four years. The mayor, and it's interesting we're talking about the sort of celebrity angle, the mayor is probably the, is, is the politician in the country with largest direct personal mandate, more than the Prime Minister. You know, the Prime Minister is actually only voted to be an MP in their constituency, and their constituency will invariably have less than a smaller electorate than the whole of London. So actually the Mayor of London has, has the single largest mandate of any elected politician in the country. 
which does kind of attract, <laughs> I guess, a certain type of person to it because it's very much about that one individual. But you do have something called the assembly, several seats, some of which represent areas, some of which are done on list basis. But this assembly is designed to produce a balance of different political parties. So it's voted for, but the voting system is a little complex, but it's almost like proportional representation, almost basically the point being the assembly shouldn't ever be just a London 14 plus, I think it's more than 14, isn't it? 20 something. It's a, a million people on the assembly, <laughs> but it shouldn't be dominated by one party. So you should have a range of voices. Challenge with that is that the assembly's main thing is, is sort of scrutiny, holding the mayor to account, asking questions, etc. But their only real proper formal power is kind of a nuclear option. You know, it's a really big thing to do, which is to block the mayor's budget, annual budget, if they get a two-thirds majority. But they also have to agree an alternative budget amongst themselves. So you can only block the mayor's budget which is the big thing you can do, which means you can say, you can't do that, you can't spend money on that. Effectively, that means you can't do it. You know, money is whoever holds the purse strings kind of controls what you do. But it is elected in such a way that it's very hard to find a kind of coalition within the assembly at any point um, that can agree on an alternative budget. So generally, you know, mayors do a deal with the Greens maybe or one of the smaller parties. So it doesn't have a great amount of, traditional hard power but it can like a parliamentary select committee but less powerful can kind of shine a light on things that are going wrong you do get to ask questions of the mayor and you do have that nuclear option if a mayor did something pretty mad and i think that's what it's for it's for if a mayor is kind of corrupt or really acting up then they can stop them but it's it's like you say the whole system is designed around this one person having quite a lot of power it's interesting you point that out because I'm thinking about Tony Blair as well. And not to cast aspersions on the personality of Mr. Blair, uh, I am aware though that he, uh, I think a lot of people describe his style as being quite presidential in a way and his method of decision making being fairly centralised, uh, I would say. And I think perhaps this is reflected in the structure of the mayoralty from the way you describe it. I mean, you do have a lower house, as it were, or a chamber of scrutiny that can block the mayor's budgets. Uh, but ultimately, they don't have a huge amount of hard power. And then the mayor is, is a very powerful figure with the largest single ele electoral mandate in the UK. I'm just wondering, Jack, if you can think of any instances where the Assembly have been able to block the budget of a mayor before. Has it happened before? Short answer is no. It is the sort of thing, sort of power, I guess, where to use it would be to have failed because the fact that you could means that deals are done to avoid it happening. And like I say, the voting system means that it's, it's unlikely to happen in a kind of vindictive way, you know, and, and you have a, a reasonably balanced assembly with different parties represented. So you can normally it, be astute enough in advance to make sure there's things in there that will allow it to pass. I think the first one was contentious because it had a big, big raise for the police and I think that was quite a surprise people weren't expecting that in, um, and that was uh, a big rise in sorry in the mayoral precept the mayor can charge a bit of council tax they can add a little bit on to London council tax um, or take it away or freeze it and they can choose how to spend that it's not a very large amount of money but in terms of your council tax bill as a Londoner 
but it adds up to a decent chunk and they can spend that on different things. Didn't really talk too much about what a mayor actually does, but the main thing is to be a kind of a, a voice for London in that kind of what you describe as a sort of softer power role. Lobbying central government for investment because they don't have an awful lot of ability other than that council tax precept to raise their own money. They also uh, produce mayoral strategies in a great deal of policy areas. So this is looking at London strategically and kind of trying to direct the boroughs in the city of London, um, where they're going to go in things like transport, provision of housing, things like that. But they also appoint directly various numbers of people onto the boards of what are called the functional bodies. So this is Transport for London, what is now MOPAC, but used to be um, the MPC, the, the Met Police body, in effect, fire, etc. They used to appoint people to the London Development Agency, which did economic development, but that was abolished. Um, there's a number of agencies that they appoint people to. Sometimes they can appoint themselves as chair, sometimes they appoint a deputy mayor as chair, but they, that's the way that they have power over these bodies, and these bodies tend to set the direction of transport or of policing although in each area, again, their direct power is limited. It's a, it's a kind of complicated, convoluted setup, but it does broadly work. So Jack, do you think that this is the most realistic position in British politics that anyone outside the two major parties, um, Labour and Conservative, can realistically think of achieving, as in the Lib Dems or Greens or the Independents? It's a rare example of a position that has been occupied by an independent in British politics, although that independent was Ken Livingstone and he was formerly Labour and he was to rejoin Labour before his second term. So he wasn't really properly, and I don't know if you'd call him an independent entirely, but uh, in theory, you definitely, it's the role that you have the best chance of running and succeeding as an independent for, uh, although that hasn't really, really happened properly to date. Um, it could, it could, and it and it's more achievable than to run prime minister as an independent, which is effectively impossible. That's very interesting to hear, and perhaps we will one day see a uh, an independent mayor. I and mean, technically, we have uh, in the form of Ken Livingston, but of course, he did join Labour in uh, two thousand four. But maybe we will see an independent mayor. Uh, I think I'll just uh, talk a little bit about Ken Livingston and uh, get the ball rolling in terms of analysing individual mayors. So to start off, Ken Livingston was mayor between the year 2000 and 2008. He stood again in 2008 and 2012, but unfortunately for him, he lost both times. As Jack pointed out, uh, he was originally associated with the Greater London Council in the 1980s as its leader. Uh, and during that time, he gained the moniker of Red Ken when he supported the uh, fares fare campaign for cheaper uh, London transport fares and also rallied against the Thatcher government with big displays of the unemployment figures across City Hall, uh, which used to be uh, directly opposite the House of Parliament until it was moved in the year 2000 uh, when the GLA and the mayoralty came along. It was moved to uh, Southwark uh, near Tower Bridge. So some of Ken Livingstone's achievements, uh, that includes the same-sex marriage register, she established in London prior to civil partnerships being established for same-sex couples on a national basis. 
he introduced the congestion charge, uh, making it more expensive for individual vehicles to drive into the centre of London, bid to try and reduce CO2 emissions. Uh, he abolished uh, many height restrictions on new buildings as well, partly explaining the massive rise in tall skyscrapers uh, we have seen in London since the 2000s onwards. Uh, there was also the short-lived bendy buses uh, in the area of transport, but they were short-lived, unfortunately for them. Uh, Oyster cards were introduced as well for 11 to 18-year-olds, but also um, you have free Oyster cards for 11 to 18-year-olds, and then you have the other Oyster cards for everybody else to use as a top-up system when they go on to public transport. You also have a big commitment to affordable housing as well. Uh, I know Jack was mentioning before about issues around affordable housing in London. It has constantly been something of a bugbear for municipal authorities in the city. Uh, in 2004, Ken Livingston aimed for 50% affordable housing in his London plan in terms of new housing being built. Um, it hasn't been achieved, but it is something that the mayors have been aiming for in terms of creating large amounts of affordable housing. Um, he secured the 2012 uh, Olympic bid uh, for London in 2005. But unfortunately, in the same month, he had to deal with the aftermath of the 7-7 transport bombings, which a lot of commentators compared to 9-11 uh, in New York uh, four years previously. And Ken Livingston had a bit of a strange moment in that, in that year. And I think I mean, he, he came to Jack's class when me and Mohammed were there. And I think he mentioned it a bit that, you know, he, he goes to Singapore to get the Olympics bid in 2005. And then he comes back to London. And then suddenly, there's this big terrorist attack, which he has to deal with. So that was a strange moment in his time in office. Another thing that is linked to Ken Livingston is his plan to divide London into five mega boroughs, if you like. Uh, or boroughs that all share like a common cultural or economic character. This was never really achieved because a lot of Londoners, I think, are very attached to their individual boroughs or feel a certain sense of identity with their individual boroughs. And this kind of five borough proposal was never really fully explored, but an interesting idea nonetheless. Uh, one slightly controversial aspect of Ken's mayoralty as well is his Venezuela fuel deal. Uh, now, this isn't something I'm an expert on, but from what I understand, uh, he, he made a deal with the Hugo Chavez government in Venezuela to, so they would provide fuel to the London transport in order to make the transport fares cheaper. So what Ken was doing was essentially finding a way to make transport cheaper, but other people on different areas of the political spectrum obviously were quite upset by the thought of his administration doing deals with the radical socialist government in Venezuela. That was one controversial area of his mayoralty. Before we move on to Boris Johnson, which Mohammed will be leading, I would just like to get a quick view of both Mohammed and Jack's uh, interpretation of Ken Livingston's time as mayor. You know, how did he, how did he do in your view? So we'll start with Mohammed. I think one of the most telling examples of the impact um, Livingston had as the mayor of London is that Rory Stewart, who we mentioned, was uh, a former conservative politician and independent candidate for London mayor, um, cited Ken Livingston as the best mayor London ever had, um, saying he was the guy who sorted out the Olympics, sorted out the Oyster cards, sorted out the congestion charge. And I think that's kind of speaks volumes. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's um, something that comes through sort of in the research for the book, there's kind of two things with, with this first mayor of London. Firstly, he's the first. And so that 
does provide you with an opportunity to kind of get things done. So something like the Olympics or getting Crossrail, people across the political spectrum recognise that these are really big moments for London. But there is a, an element of fortune that you are mayor at a certain time when that is possible. Right, right at the beginning, he's able to shape the, the office in, in, in his own image, but he's also able to do things like introducing the Oyster card. That was actually a really big moment for London transport. It makes a huge difference. But once it's introduced, the next mayor can't come in and reintroduce the Oyster card. You know, so it is... Some of that is to do with being the first and some of it's to do with being good. And I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about Ken Livingston, he does have, as you know, he's not the only former mayor of London with a history of kind of controversial comments, but he does say uh, some things that will cause great offence, basically. Um, he does have a, a reputation and it is d deserved, and particularly in recent times, for causing offence to different groups. He is also a politician who is really unusual in that he was mayor of London and only wanted to be mayor of London. He didn't have any sort of ambition to go beyond that. He wanted to be in local government. He wanted to be known around the country and he's got an ego and that's clear, but his, his ambition was to run London. And I wonder if we're ever gonna get a mayor like that again, where that is the extent of their ambition, that they are truly a local politician rather than a national politician. And, the role itself, remember Ken Livingston was at the GLC before, the role itself doesn't lend itself to that sort of person to address that sort of candidate. It is increasingly a national role. So it's really fascinating. Really fascinating. It's, it's interesting you bring that up because thinking about the two mayors that succeeded Ken Livingston, one of them has obviously gone on to be first foreign secretary and then prime minister. Uh, and then of Sadiq Khan, the current mayor, I mean, he used to be a cabinet minister. Maybe he'll want to move into national politics afterwards, but who knows? Uh, we'll, find, we'll, we'll find out in the future, I suppose. So, Mohammed, speaking of succeeding mayors, I'm just wondering if you could talk us through uh, the Johnson mayoralty. So, Boris Johnson, our current Prime Minister, was Mayor of London from 2008 to, to 2016. Um, before that, he worked as a journalist, and when I say journalist, I say it with air quotes, um, for the times from which he was dismissed for fabricating a quote, and other publications such as the Daily Telegraph, where he became renowned for writing Eurosceptic articles that allegedly played bus and loose with facts. Chris Patton, a former Conservative cabinet minister, called him one of the greatest exponents of fake journalism. He was also an MP for Henley, uh, which was a safe Tory seat, and then he resigned from that to become London mayor. For a job that has significant soft power, personality must play a huge role in bringing people together and work towards a common vision. And Boris Johnson is renowned for having that in spades. Um, I think clearly you must have great personality or have a, a perception of having a great personality if being a conservative politician, you're able to win two terms in a city that kind of leans labor. So people say that Boris was gifted with the superpower that makes people laugh with him rather than at him. And an example that gets cited a lot is when he got stuck on a zip wire while celebrating uh, an Olympic achievement by the UK. And that could have ended any other politician's career, but it only seemed to endear him towards the voters instead. There's a quote I love that Michael Gove is reported to have said, and he said that Boris has the capacity to lose his way in a sentence like a child in a nativity play. You want him to succeed, and when he does, you share in his triumph. And I just really love that. 
so it said that Boris ran the mayor's office like a chairman, where he would set the overarching strategy and then delegate the final details and execution of the policy to the people uh, working for him. And you can even see that now with allegations that Dominic Cummings is the one actually running things. Back then, when he was mayor, it was Eddie Lister and Simon Milton, two seasoned local government stalwarts who served as his chiefs of staff, who were credited with steadying the ship and kind of running things smoothly when he was mayor. In 2013, Boris was accused by Len Duell, a leader of the Labour Group on the London Assembly, of giving the perception that he was using public funds to set up a team to reward his friends and for a bid for the Conservative Party leadership. And it, it kind of was a recurring theme where there were allegations of appointing friends to important roles. Um, I think Andrew Gilligan was an example which was really controversial. He was Jack, was it uh, a cycle? Uh, like an accredited by a lot of people for helping Boris win the election because of his critical articles of Ken Livingston. These are all allegations by political opponents and analysts, so you, so you have to take it with a grain of salt. Uh, one of Boris's most famous contributions to London would be the Boris bikes, uh, even though many would argue that he stole the credit for that from Ken Livingston. And that is also another recurring theme where people say that Boris took a lot of uh, credit for things that Ken Livingston was responsible for, like, for example, bringing the Olympics to London. A 2017 article by Matthew Weaver for The Guardian claims that there was almost a billion pound bill for Boris Johnson's vanity projects when he was mayor. Would you like to comment on that, Jack? One person's vanity project is uh, another person's infrastructure, vital infrastructure project. Boris Johnson is understandably someone who really does divide opinion politically. So the orbit over at the Olympic site Emirates Airline, these things had some private money towards them as well and some public money and it kind of depends whether you like them or not. You definitely couldn't argue that either of those are essential bits of infrastructure, right? One is a cable car between two places where people don't tend to go um, and another one is a skill a slide which is not even sort of the most efficient way to get from the top to the bottom but they are both sort of attractions so it depends whether you like them or not and depends on whether or not you think that is that is money that has been wasted or if you think that is two iconic additions to the London skyline because you know they are both recognizable elements of the skyline now in what is an increasingly kind of globalized city where you want to sell the image of London. I think it's interesting to consider Johnson's legacy of hosting the Olympics uh, and creating the cable car in East London in the context of the development of East London in the 90s and 2000s as well because of course you have the Docklands development rising up uh, in the 1980s and then reaching fruition in the 1990s with one Canada Square and other skyscrapers and big financial institutions coming into the area but then also in the year 2000 you have the Millennium Dome uh, the extension of the Jubilee line and then of course when Johnson does come in you do have the Olympics and the big acela orbital structure so I suppose even there you can think about Johnson's achievements in the east of London as something of a continuation of previous policy and strategy. 
I mean, I think it would be fair to say, it'd be fair to say that actually, perhaps this is just to do with the chronology, or perhaps this is to do with with Boris Johnson as mayor. His mayoralty is actually not that transformative. The Boris bike thing still still is controversial as to whose idea it was. It was kind of something that TfL were working on initially, was nicked off of Paris initially under Ken Livingston, but Boris brought it in and made it happen. And that's kind of how politics works, right? If you bring something in, it's yours. You know, that's kind of the traditional way things work in general. It just so happens that also he uh, gets his name put on things and his first name as well. You know, we've mentioned earlier, this is a, a thing that uh, mayors of London tend to have so far. I wonder if that will end at some point. I wonder if we have someone who's either got a, a maybe a boring first name or a, I, I don't know. I don't know. There is some, there is some, something, something fascinating there. But yeah, overall, overall, East End of London, transformation of that predates the mayoralty, but is accelerated by the Olympics, which is won by Ken Livingston. Boris does chair the Legacy, London Legacy Development Corporation, and does have some influence on the, the legacy, regenerative legacy of the Olympics. So, steady as she goes, kind of thing is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, you don't, you don't constantly have to be ripping things up um, and starting again just for the sake of it. It's also worth mentioning as well just really quickly that Boris Johnson's mayoralty does coincide with a global financial crisis. That does mean there's not a lot of money about to do stuff but there is perhaps more money, you can make an argument that there is more money in London to do stuff because he manages to get it out of George Osborne and the Treasury. So uh, there is quite a convincing case to be made that London does quite well out of having Boris Johnson as mayor, given the context of kind of national austerity. And it's very interesting to say, and I've heard Johnson's mayoralty being described as more continuity than transformation, but I suppose to be fair to him, the financial crisis would have put constraints on the ability for him to make new projects. And you could say that Ken Livingston did initiate a lot of keynote projects uh, like the Oyster Card, like the congestion charge that really set the tone for the mayoralty before Johnson came in. So we can move on uh, to Sadiq Khan, current mayor. Uh, I have a few points about Sadiq there. There you go, using his first name again. Uh, I've got a few points about Sadiq, but I think Mohammed uh, has a few introductory points as well. So Sadiq Khan, a former human rights lawyer and MP for Tooting, as well as a former cabinet minister and a former shadow cabinet minister, became the mayor of London in 2016 when he defeated Zach Goldsmith in a very controversial election. It was controversial in that Zach Goldsmith, the conservative candidate, faced allegations of running a campaign mired in racist stock whistles and Islamophobia, which even his own sister, Jemima Khan, um, and some members of his own party condemned. And I think that kind of alienated a lot of the population that initially viewed Zach Goldsmith in a more positive light. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that Zach Goldsmith's uh, brother-in-law is Imran Khan, who is a popular Pakistani politician and a cricketer who actually endorsed Zach Goldsmith as mayor. That it caused a lot of controversy in Pakistan because instead of quote unquote uh, endorsing a British politician of Pakistani origin and a Muslim, uh, Imran Khan had endorsed Zach Goldsmith, who was his former brother-in-law. But then the tone of the campaign itself alienated such a huge, or allegedly alienated such a huge portion of the population. Um, and it left a sour taste in a lot of the Muslim communities' uh, mouths. Uh, so, uh, so when Sadiq Khan actually became mayor of London, I, I think that a, a lot of 
people in the Muslim community, especially, took that as a very, very healing moment. I think also we were Sadiq Khan uh, looking at his early mayoralty as well. He did quite a, quite quickly get into a bit of a Twitter uh, spat with Donald Trump around Donald Trump's attitudes and policies towards immigration. And I think when when you talk about Sadiq Khan as being something of a healing candidate or providing a healing moment for London's Muslim community and also perhaps ethnic minorities in general, you could argue. That kind of ties in, I think, to his overall image of being a kind of champion or a fighter for an open London, you know, even battling Donald Trump on the internet or going to to Europe to represent London, for example. He's seen, uh, as well as being a political figure, also something of a cultural figure who is emblematic of some of the values that a lot of Londoners hold dear. But in addition to that, in his first year or so as mayor, he made what some might describe as some quick wins uh, with transport. So for instance, he introduced the night tube on Friday and Saturday nights to support London's nighttime economy. Uh, It wasn't on all of the lines of the tube, but it was on some of the most used tube lines. Eventually, they will expand it to more lines. He also banned uh, advertising of junk food on Transport for London services. And also he introduced the hopper fare on buses. So basically, if you sign in uh, to one bus and then within an hour you get onto another bus, the second bus journey is free. Uh, That was something that Sadiq Khan introduced to make public transport more affordable. And another thing he introduced was freezing single fares on the tube. Uh, allowing people to get around a bit more cheaply. Um, He's also keen on improving air quality. Uh, So, for example, he extended to the ultra-low emission zone in central London and has also backed uh, several pedestrianisation schemes, uh, such as there is a proposed scheme, I think, to pedestrianise Oxford Oxford Street, uh, or at least part of it. I know you go back to Ken Livingston and he actually initiated the pedestrianisation of Trafalgar Square, but I suppose Sadiq Khan is something of a continuation of that attitude. Also, Sadiq Khan has committed lots of funding to different areas, including 110 million to the Metropolitan Police, funds towards housing associations and councils, uh, and also a 45 million Young Londoners Fund aimed to help reduce the risk of young people heading towards violence. And again, like previous mayors, uh, he has also committed to creating uh, a vast number of new affordable homes This hasn't always been realized in the past. And I think at the moment, not all of the affordable homes he said he'd be able to complete at this point have yet to be completed. Um, There was also the issue I know in Boris Johnson's mayoralty, he actually changed the definition of affordable housing. And I'm not actually aware whether Sadiq Khan has changed it back or not. It's hard to kind of measure when you're looking at achievements with regards to building of affordable housing. I think uh, another aspect of Sadiq Khan's um, mayoralty is also dealing with the impact of COVID-19 this year. So in a parallel universe where COVID-19 hadn't struck the world, uh, we would have already had another mayoral election this year in May, but that has been postponed to May 2021. Uh, So Sadiq Khan is actually the first mayor to have a five-year term of office as a London mayor. But in terms of dealing with the impacts of COVID-19, there was closure of stations on the London Underground. You also had this mass advertising campaign on buses and trains about 
wearing face masks. Uh, now that's been introduced as government policy on transport. And then there was a period as well to protect bus drivers from COVID-19. There was a non-collection period of fares on buses, and I think that lasted over two months. Uh, I remember getting on a bus during that time, actually, and being surprised it was free, uh, which was interesting. Uh, small silver lining, perhaps. Um, but of course, in all seriousness, there have been bus drivers who have contracted COVID-19 and have died uh, from it. So Sadiq had to take some very quick action to try and prevent further deaths of transport workers. So I think it's fair to say that Sadiq Khan has had quite an eventful first four years as mayor. I think uh, one of the things that um, supporters of uh, Sadiq Khan always say is that unlike Boris Johnson, who inherited a lot of policies and schemes that were in, already in process from Ken Livingston, Sadiq Khan didn't inherit anything like that from Boris and instead um, had to put out fires as such. So that kind of hampered a lot of things that he could have done. And I think that a lot of people always look at the symbolic element of Sadiq Khan as a British Pakistani Muslim mayor or someone from like a religious minority and an ethnic minority kind of being in charge of uh, the largest city in the United Kingdom. I think that that credit to diversity is really symbolic and kind of sends a message to the rest of the world about how welcoming Britain can be. So I think there's a lot of importance to that. But I do recognize that a lot of critics, including some people from the Labour Party itself, always try and say that while you, you can put aside the symbolic elements and the excuses, what really has Sadiq Khan accomplished? So I've got, I've got to make the case for, right? Um, <laughs> I'm very happy to make both cases. I'm going to be, be very academic about it. But, um, you're right that that is something, the, the symbolic element of having, you know, being London's first Muslim mayor and, you know, this is, this is important. This is, is a real thing. Um, what you said earlier about the, the, the campaign, these, thing, these things do matter, but there is a kind of embodying and representing our uh, wonderful, inclusive, diverse values as a city is one thing and one element, but in terms of concrete policy achievements, the list is fairly fairly short. I mean, uh, Jack Lewis mentioned a few. Um, the night tube is one of those kind of Boris bike type situations where that was kind of underway when Sadiq takes over. He delivers it, you know, and there's some, some union issues that need to be negotiated there. So that is a, an achievement, but it was something that was on the way. The Oxford Street pedestrianisation, which would have been a big deal because that would have changed, you know, one of our most vibrant shopping districts quite radically doesn't happen that's that's opposed by Westminster Council from below and, and blocked may happen in the future doesn't seem to be going anywhere the hopper fare is great but it's you know it's a different type of bus ticket it's not kind of like you know it's not gonna be called the Sadiq ticket all that said both the other mayors that we looked at are two-term mayors and one thing that I didn't mention earlier that that has come up but is the idea of the London plan, which is one of the other responsibilities of the mayor, to produce this spatial plan for the entire capital. Um, and that's kind of your, your big vision. And that takes several years to put together. And Sadiq's current London plan is in draft form and has just been knocked back by central government, um, he would argue, because they thought there was an election coming up. So central government has to approve it. 
he definitely argues that there was some politics involved in that. But four years, I'm not sure, is enough time to deliver. He's talking about some slightly more radical things now. He's talking about, um, or at least pre-COVID, was talking about the idea of rent controls. You know, that would be a huge move. The expansion of the ultra-low emission zone all the way up to the north and south circular roads. That means ordinary Londoners who are driving around between their house and their their grandmas, you know, <laughs> are going to have to pay. And that's going to transform air quality and have all sorts of positive impacts, but would would be something you'd point to as transformative, you know. So we'll have to see. It does look like very likely that um, Sadiq will win the 2021 election. Opinion polling, very recent opinion polling, showing him double the, the, his nearest rival. But you never know with these things. COVID-19 has been huge. You know, not just getting uh, Jack Lewis on the free bus, but also um, crippling TfL's finances. Again, not to blame Jack personally for that. But uh, TfL is receives no central government subsidy now for its operating costs, and so it is entirely reliant on fares. So when COVID nineteen happened, we told people quite rightly stay at home, don't get on the bus, don't get on the tube, which was actually the mayor had to say initially, just don't go at all, stay at home if you possibly can. That means that all the money completely dries up. We needed, as a city, that TfL needed bailout from central government to keep it going. Unavoidable, but central government has grabbed back a little bit of power there, put a couple of people on the TfL board to watch over it. So there's a kind of a huge question. Sadiq looks likely to win in 2021. But will the mayoralty continue to or to exist, to be honest, you know, in its current form? Powers are being rowed back. There's a, there's a possible scenario, I'm not saying this is what's going to happen, but that Sadiq Khan does win, but is much less able to do anything, <laughs> you know, in the future than before. You know, Central London is empty. Kind of hospitality in particular and tourism, things like that, which are really important to Central London economy, are going nowhere moment a particularly hard hit he's a man who's been really unfortunate actually he came in brexit happened straight away which puts him on the side of 60 percent of londoners but against 40 percent of londoners overnight that's a very divisive thing and a thing that's going to cause economic shocks he's had terror attacks to deal with grenfell big constant big diversions donald trump's you know the war of words might make him kind of popular with londoners but um a distraction so he's had a tough time as well so it will be. It will all depend on that second term. Should it happen? What a time to be alive, eh? Yeah. No. He's, I think it's been a very uh, challenging time to be mayor, certainly. And obviously, previous mayors have had crises before the seven-seven uh, terrorist attack, the financial crisis in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and then, of course, I know this wasn't really a crisis, but you had the Olympics as well. That that took up so much money and energy, uh, you know, for both Ken Livingston and Boris Johnson, you know, that, that was something to deal with. But of course, now you have all these different challenges in very quick succession. And I think uh, Grenfell is interesting to touch on as well. Uh, a national tragedy, obviously, um, but also a tragedy that highlights a very important issue in London. And it's the fact that so many people in the city are living in uh, substandard or even unsafe housing. And then, of course, COVID-19 has highlighted, highlighted a lot of class um, and income disparities as well. Um, you look at 
the bor borough such as the London Borough of Southwark, which is very densely populated, but also I believe has the one of the highest uh, proportions of social housing uh, for any London borough, and also a lack of green space as well. And in a borough like that, you've had COVID-19 becoming disproportionately effective in terms of infecting large numbers of people. And then you, you wonder where are the boroughs that are being less hit? Well, it's the borough of Richmond, it's the borough of Kingston, where you have lots of green space, uh, houses are further apart, you have more white collar workforce that can work remotely from home. COVID-19 across the country, but also in London in particular, has highlighted so many divisions uh, that still exist in, in the city. And, and as well as Jack mentioned, training TfL of funds and training the London's economy, I think COVID-19 has also highlighted so many remaining issues around housing, green space, income, that still exist for the 8.5 or potentially more uh, Londoners that the mayor has jurisdiction over. So yeah, certainly very interesting times. Uh, I'm just reminded of that old Chinese curse, uh, may your children live in interesting times. Uh, so there you have it. But we, we will see how Sadiq Khan progresses in his mayoralty and it'll be interesting to observe the elections next year in 2021, uh, how those are going to go. So we're coming towards the end of the podcast now. I would just be curious to hear people's views around the mayoralty as a whole. Uh, you know, what, what has it achieved? What are the pros and cons of having a mayor of London? Uh, so I'll quickly start us off. Uh, I think for me, one of the positives of having a mayor is that London has a figurehead, a representative that can represent the interests of London directly to central government, but also across the global media as well. I think it's also very useful to have a structured London government with a clear figurehead who is responsible to the people. I mean, we saw in the late 1980s and throughout the 1990s uh, what happened when London didn't have an overarching system of government. You had boroughs working together, sometimes effectively, but sometimes ineffectively, and you didn't have an overall strategy for roads and transport, for example. So there was much less of an ability to coordinate. Whereas with the mayoralty and a Greater London Assembly who can criticise uh, and scrutinise the mayoralty, you have a lot more coordination of policy and programmes across London. Uh, so I think the mayoralty, in my opinion, is definitely a positive institution and something that helps Londoners deal with some of the problems that they face on a day-to-day -day basis and also more generally across their lifetimes as well. So I mostly agree with points that you just made, but in a city like London where income disparity is growing by the day um, and it's becoming more and more obvious, if you're a labor mayor and you're reliant on the working class vote in London, there needs to be attention paid to this sort of like simmering resentment on cars and transportation. Um, and I think that they feel overlooked at a lot of the environment, environmentally friendly policies, uh, which I think Sadiq seems to be very keen on. And I think for the future, this is an area that I think people should pay a lot of attention to, um, because if, if you are going to rely on the working class vote as a labor mayor, you don't want to alienate them. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a fascinating point. And it will be really interesting to see what happens with ultra low emission zone and the, the expansion of what was the toxicity charge. But, you know, the idea of making 
motorists pay more is never a classic vote winner. But polling kind of suggests that most Londoners agree that air quality is a genuine concern and that something needs to be done. What you do, you know, the answer is not get everyone on the bike. That is desirable, but not going to happen overnight and not possible for everyone, etc. How you manage motorists in particular is a big challenge. On the Meralty in general, it was not the only system that we could have had. Um, but it has been a successful one. Like I say, huge mandate for one person gives them a really strong voice to speak for London. I believe this city, if it is to remain world-class, needs. But that that said, nobody's really on the tube at all at the moment, so it's not the best time to be advocating for this. Something like the Olympics, which was a rare moment where the, the country seemed to like London at the moment. And there's a huge division in this country between big cities and the rest, but particularly London. That seemed to be ameliorated for a little bit around the Olympics. That was a big transformative moment for a lot of East London and the mayor was important to that happening. And things like housing that you've mentioned and policing as well, whether cuts to policing budgets or in numbers of police, the kind of lines of accountability are not that strong. It's complicated uh, and Sadiq can blame central government, can blame the Home Office for police cuts and it's not entirely clear to Londoners it's kind of who do you believe and that's London at the moment and I think for, for a little while and for a little while into the future it's mostly a Labour city just because of various demographic um, issues with a bit of a ring of blue and the edge but it is mainly a Labour city overall I'm going to say the Meralty a success a success with room for improvement into the future I, I still think that uh we're coming into a really difficult time for the future of cities full stop. That is probably going to be the biggest issue over the next couple of years is COVID um, having different impacts in different areas. Have mentioned inequality. They're all under, under question right now. Um, I happen to think they're the most sort of environmentally friendly way of living, live close to each other, don't commute, don't drive for hours and hours across the country. But uh, if cities are under, are under challenge, then what is the point in having a, a strong politician in charge of them? You know, what's the point in having them at all? I just wanted to end on a kind of a, a note of mild confusion, uh, slight alarm, uh, <laughs> gentle panic. It's gonna, be, it's gonna be a very, very, very interesting few years to be uh, watching from outside. But um, today, I think Melty has done well. We've been, we've been lucky to have one. Thank you for that, Jack. And I think, yeah, as, as both of you pointed out, you know, it is a very challenging time for Meralty. So that is it from us here at Politics Kings. I'm Jack Lewis, uh, to here, and our guest, Jack Brown. So thank you very much for listening. We look forward to making a podcast for you next time.